Welcome to the AMR Studio, a podcast dedicated to the multidisciplinary research on antimicrobial resistance, hosted by the Uppsala Antibiotic Center. Hi, I am Eva Garmendia. And I'm Jenny Jagman. And I'm Po Ching Tang. Welcome back to the AMR Studio. Today we are featuring an interview with Professor Jerry Wright from the McMaster University in Canada. And we had the luck to have him over in Sweden back in the end of November 2019 because he came to give several lectures at a course on antibiotics and antibiotic resistance that was uh, given by several national organizations from Sweden and Norway in a collaborative uh, effort to actually bring all these professionals on the topic. I have to say that this interview, it's one of the ones that I enjoy the most so far in, in our podcast. And I hope that you guys get to feel the same way as we did with this interview. See you back here for our little comment on the interview. Hope you enjoy. Thank you for joining us today, Professor Wright. Uh, would you mind introducing yourself and where you're working now? Sure, I'm uh, delighted to be here. My name is Jerry Wright. I am the director of the Michael DeGroote Institute for Infectious Disease Research at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada, which is about 45 minutes west of Toronto. What field are you currently working in and how did you end up there? I guess I'm working in what I would say is the chemical biology of antibiotics. My PhD, which I got a long time ago, <laughs> is in chemistry. And there uh, I was doing medicinal chemistry of antifungal targets and drugs. So my training is in chemistry, but my further training is in post-PhD was in microbiology and bacterial molecular biology. And so I did a couple of years of postdoctoral fellowship at uh, Harvard Medical School, and then I took a position in the Department of Biochemistry at the Master University in January 1993 where I thought I would be for just a few years before they figured out that I was not what they thought they bought. <laughs> and here I am 26 years later, still there. Do you feel more comfortable there now? <laughs> yeah, well, it turns out, so, so I will tell you that like everyone, I think I suffered from imposter syndrome in a, in a big way. And, you know, starting your own lab and, and working in an academic environment, you're never really sure if you've really got the stuff to make it you know, to come up with your own ideas, to recruit students and postdocs, to, you know, write grants and get them funded and and to run a lab and do all those, those things. It's, there's a whole series of skill sets that we don't really train people to do them. It's kind of on-the-job learning. Yeah. And so I think on the one hand, there was, there was definitely the sort of imposter syndrome that, you know, I'm not good enough to do this. But on the other hand, it really was, you know, I'm not really sure if I have the right skills to do this. But you took the chance anyway. I did take it's a chance because well. I figured, well, it turns out that it's the best job for me. It's like absolutely the best job because it turns out that I don't take instruction very well. <laughs> so running my own lab and working with the people in my lab, of course, is much better than me, I think, working in a drug company, which is honestly where I thought I would be. I thought I would yeah. end up working more in that kind of environment, but it turns out that I have a authority problem. So. <laughs> It was good to find that out, and it was good to find out that I could actually do the job in, in an academic environment. So that's how I got here. A fun story. <laughs> but um, you mentioned that you started in chemistry background mm -hmm. and then ended up going towards bacteriology, more specific, the, I say, the mechanisms. And Was there anything that made you want to make this change? You said you started in antifungals, but from the chemistry standpoint. Yeah, so... Originally, when I was an undergraduate student, I thought I was going to go to medical school. Mm -hmm. And then 
It turns out I would be a terrible clinician. I think anyone who who knows me would, would agree with that. That I just I don't I'm not very patient, and all those things that I admire in in my colleagues who really are good clinicians, I'm not really good at. But I had a summer job in a lab, and that completely changed the way that I wanted to do things. And I got really excited about drugs. I said, well, maybe this is how I could have a contribution to medicine, not by necessarily dealing with patients every day. And, and I think the patients of the world are happy that that didn't happen. <laughs> um, but that maybe my contribution to medicine could be through through the research angle. And so at the time of my PhD, the HIV AIDS crisis was full-blown and people were very ill and young people were dying and they weren't dying of HIV infection, they were dying because their immune system had collapsed and made them susceptible yeah. to all sorts of pathogens that normally you wouldn't be, and fungi were one of them. Mm-hmm. And so I happened to be incredibly lucky to get into the lab of a brand new young assistant professor who was just starting his lab, who was working on medicinal chemistry of antifungal agents, and I thought that would be a good place to start. When I finished there, though, I realized that while I got a really good grounding in chemistry, and I did a fair bit of protein work in my project as well, that what I really wanted to do was expand that and learn more molecular biology. And, and so that's how I ended up as a postdoctoral fellow in, at Harvard Medical School. Um, and I, you know, the, my life is full of very lucky chances. And I didn't know anything about antibiotic resistance at the time. I was just interested in drug development and things like that. And I ended up being uh, assigned a project in something that was just hitting the clinic at the time, which was vancomycin resistance. Mm-hmm. It was just becoming a problem at the, in the hospitals in Boston. And so the lab that I joined was also uh, working with the infectious disease group at the medical school who was actually seeing patients that were failing therapy with vancomycin for the first time ever. And so that really again, got me incredibly excited. So here's an opportunity to, to, again, contribute to medicine, not necessarily through drugs, but actually working with clinicians to solve problems that they were having, or at the very least, give them some understanding as to where those problems had their origins. And that really got me introduced to antibiotics and then the more, the sort of more microbiology. And so I'm very much an imposter in my microbiology. I've, I've learned everything that I know through osmosis and talking to really smart people. And then obviously being blessed by recruiting really smart people to come and work with me in my lab. But I mean, you can never learn everything from school and from everything. You always learn. No, that's Most that's, that's, that's 100% thing. true. But I, I, I will say this, is that I do think that my background in chemistry has given me a, a unique, or at least a, a different perspective yeah. on the problem of antibiotics and antibiotic resistance that I otherwise wouldn't have if my training was exclusively in microbiology. Mm-hmm. So I always think about things in that fashion, you know, coming with a chemical background. And that's why I said when you asked me what, what am I, I'm sort of, I still think of myself now as a chemical biologist, mm-hmm. not so much as a chemist anymore, but I'm not a full-fledged biologist either. So I think I've sort of come at it in a, at a different perspective. And I think it's been to my advantage over the years because I'm, I think I'm able to ask some stupid questions. <laughs> and sometimes those stupid questions have really simple answers, but sometimes they have really interesting answers that other people, you know, may have missed because they've taken it for granted because yeah. of their biological background. Yeah. Personally, I think it sounds like a really excellent way to get into specifically AMR research because you kind of need to come at it from so many different standpoints. Yeah. It actually sounds really almost optimal to be trained in something and then end up somewhere else where you can provide things, but also, of course, collaborate with other people. But 
Well, I think that's I mean, the really the, the lesson for probably just about any important field in medicine these days is you really do have to have a multiple perspectives and, and either, as you said, you either have the opportunity to do it yourself or you start to work with lots of different people. I mean, when I was going down this route and I started my own lab, for example, I never thought we would be sequencing genomes. Mm. I never thought that I'd be spending so much time doing bioinformatics. <laughs> I don't think that even was a word back no. when I started or that I would be thinking of things at a population level or that I would be working on, you know, the, the kinds of things that we have ended up working with, you know, high throughput drug screening. I mean, mm -hmm. again, that was not even something that was on the radar for me. Again, it's just being able to see opportunities, see how they apply to the research area that you want to go and, and just not be afraid to try them. Because, yeah. again, I think I've really benefited from being an outsider coming into this field and not thinking that I had to do it only in one way. Yeah. Have you felt, I don't know if it's fair to say, have you felt welcomed into the community or to say, have you ever felt, so, have you I mean, felt comfortable coming into the community? I will say that the, the community of researchers that work in antibiotics and antibiotic resistance are absolutely fantastic. They really are exciting to work with. They're, they're challenged all the time because I think it's such a moving target in all these directions that, that I think they're more humble. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, it's as including I mean the bacteria humble you very very quickly and I would I dare say that this is not the same in other fields because one of the other sort of side roads that I've taken in my life is I was chair of the department of biochemistry at McMaster for seven years and there there was a bunch of different research areas not just antibiotics and it's fair to say that the kind of a sense of camaraderie and sense of common purpose that mm -hmm. I see in the AMR community, in the antibiotics community, is not replicated in all areas of science. No. So yeah, no, it was great. I mean, I was, again, I've been incredibly lucky because I've had uh, people who've looked out for me and people who've championed my science, um, more senior statesmen back in the day mm -hmm. who saw the, that I was you know, that I had some value and the strategy that we were taking had some value and we were very, very supportive. Um, Do you think maybe, as you mentioned, that you kind of came into this field with a, you said something along the lines of you wanted to do your part for medicine. Do you think maybe that kind of drives others as well? I mean, maybe people who work in antimicrobial resistance or antibiotics are closer to these issues and it affects you a bit more. It kind of sets your mindset to the yeah, I mean, but it's an emergency. It really does have a. I mean, sure. I mean, it really does have a, a front and center application. It's it's. I mean, there's a lot of sort of fundamental nerdy kind of fun yeah. research that still has to be done, but there's always the evidence of application mm -hmm. in the field. I, I will say that that even while I, I said you know I I had these ambitions that the kind of science we would do in the lab would be my way of contributing to medicine. I will say, you know, without any false modesty, that I don't think we've really done that much. <laughs> I think we've contributed a lot of fundamental research, and I think we've tried to find new solutions. We've tried to do different kinds of things, but so far, nothing that we've ever done in the lab has really shifted the needle in, in medicine yet. Mm. But I still have a lot of science left in me, and I think yeah. that, <laughs> that there's still an opportunity to aspire to that. If you have energy, yeah. there's always more time. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah, I always, the, one of the mottos I have for the folks in my lab is that sleep is for babies. So uh, I tend to absorb that sometimes. Kind of going into that a little bit. Do you think there's anything missing in AMR research from your point of view? You mean other than the rest of the world taking it very seriously? 
But don't you think that maybe the rest of the world has started taking it? I think so. I think I think we are particularly challenged in this field in that the public does not understand no. either you know the scope of the problem, the global contributions to the problem, or even what antibiotics are for or what they do. I mean, they, everyone is, knows someone that has had, and I'll pick on cancer because it's easy, you know, someone who's with cancer, someone's mm-hmm. grandmother has always died of cancer, or they've had someone in their family touched by heart disease. So these are sort of the big things that they can see. I mean, that's the front and center for them of some of the, the adverse challenges that we have in medicine. And antibiotics are just something that you take when you've got an infection, and maybe they'll take them because they have, you know, a viral infection. I mean, at the very... If you even just bring it back to that, I mean, how if you were to walk down the street of Stockholm and randomly pick 10 people and ask them, what's the difference between a virus and a bacterium and a fungus or a parasite, they wouldn't be able to, to do it. No. And that's, that's one of the challenges that we have. And so I think this is something that, that we as a community have got to work much harder at. And I don't know how, I honestly don't have any brilliant ideas about how we solve this. I do think that one of the things that's missing, as you asked in, in AMR, is just a better public understanding of what the problem is, what the scope of it is, and what the implications are if we don't get our hands wrapped around this problem and really trying to figure out a solution. Yeah. You know, the, the, the analogy has been made many times by smarter people than me that it's, it has a lot of similarities with global warming or climate change is better word than global warming. <laughs> and the similarities with climate change, I think, are, are actually pretty relevant. It took a long time for the scientific evidence that there really was an uptick, a really significant human-induced uptick in the overall temperature of the planet, and that we are A, contributing to it, and B, could actually do something about it. Yeah. It really took a long time for that to come about. And as we all know, there are certain you know, very famous individuals who, who are, <laughs> actually have, deny it, so that yeah. it still, still hasn't penetrated deeply into the psyche of everyone on the planet. But I do think that the kinds of strategies that those researchers did and used and, and the kind of advocacy that they've done is something that we can learn from on, mm-hmm. on our side and, and maybe pick up some key pointers about how to communicate a complex scientific problem to a population that, for the most part, doesn't know very much science. No kind of put more effort into the science communication of these more difficult and specifically for AMR and climate change, they're very complex and there's levels of the global differences. You have to do different things in different parts of the world. And And the problems are different around the world. I mean, for us, you know, in Europe and in North America, these are for the most part problems of the medical establishment. Yeah. That's where the big problem is for us right now. Whereas you think of other parts of the world where the basic sanitation that we take for granted isn't even mm-hmm. available and so they're and the health infrastructure isn't really there either exactly and so what do you have you have and on compounded on top of that you have unrestricted availability to antibiotics yeah perhaps not even you know in the right doses or anything mm. like that so and maybe counterfeit i mean maybe not yeah so you've got all of these things happening and all of that of course contributes and so the amr problem in those countries is different although scientifically it's the same kind of deal but socially it's a different yeah. problem than it is you know in sweden or in canada or wherever it is we come back to it in a lot of these interviews that it's not really even a problem of resistance in a lot of parts of the world it's a problem of access exactly first and foremost yeah. either too much access or not enough access yeah <laughs> unfortunately right now it's mainly not enough access yeah. if i've understood right 
So it's really, it's hard to have one message to give everybody that we need to reduce. It's not, it's not just exactly. that. And it's the same kind of issues, I think, as I said, again, to bring the analogy back to climate change. It's, it's different in a tiny, tiny island in the South Pacific that's about to be, you know, yeah, about swallowed to no up longer by, exist. The, by the ocean than it is for, you know, the Inuit in northern Canada trying to, trying to deal with the social implications of yeah. no longer being able to, to access, you know, traditional food sources. I do think so. You know, to get back to your question, what's the, what's missing? What's missing in this field is really some concerted effort to do a, a really outstanding communication job. Yeah, it's perhaps impossible. <laughs> well, you did mention one thing right right in the beginning of your answer there about, for example, with cancer, almost everybody they know somebody they have that connection, and there's a. I don't know this for sure, but I'm pretty sure there's a theory in science communication that if you can tell somebody's story, for example, telling maybe patient stories, patients that have been affected by antibiotic resistance or the family members of patients who have passed away from antibiotic resistant infections, do you think that might be one of the keys? Oh, I think there's no question that that's incredibly powerful. All right. I mean, humans are all about stories. Um, yeah. This is... I'm sure we... And humanizing it in a way. It's not... So, yeah, we all forget data. Yeah. Right? And, and we've all spent all this time in university jamming data into your brain so that you could actually regurgitate it for an exam mm -hmm. and then immediately forgot it. But the anecdote that, you know, your professor told you about some specific aspect of it is something you, that perhaps you'll remember for, for decades to come. Yeah. So this is really all about telling stories in order to make it relevant to people, because otherwise it's just not relevant. Yeah. Like I like I, I started out by saying, well, you know, if, if people don't know the difference between bacteria and viruses, well, of course they're not, because it's not part of their daily life. It's my yeah. it's my job to know the difference between exactly. bacteria and viruses, so I should know the difference. But they can't expect somebody. Of course. You can't expect a person to know everything. I mean, they have right. other specialties and other jobs. Then that's right. But if you tell them a story about what the causes are of cold yeah as opposed to you know an abscess on your on mm -hmm. your leg and if you can relate that i mean and again I, I think what we're missing in the field are people who are incredibly skilled at being able to do this yeah and i know that and it's not easy in science this is not just an amr problem it's a it's a bigger science problem yeah. but i think it's a in particular having a negative impact on on our field because of all the things we just said it's complex mm -hmm. it's global it's the story is different in different parts of the world at the end of the day though it's all you know it comes down to yeah. the challenge of dealing with evolution and then staying as best as we can one step ahead of but i wonder if this ties back to something you mentioned earlier you were talking about how you ended up where you are that we aren't really trained to run a lab we're trained in really methodology in most cases in sure. theory that maybe this is one of those other things i mean we need more scientists that are trained in communication and not oh, just communication absolutely. between scientists. That's one problem, of course, but communication out to the broader public and communication to policymakers and absolutely. stakeholders. You know, I have, I have nothing but, a, but tremendous respect for people who can do this right. I mean, there's, I'm sure there's people in Europe that I'm not aware of, but I know that there's uh, some great journalists in, in this field. So, Marin McKenna, for mm -hmm. example, who works out of Atlanta, and you know Ed Young is a very good Ed Young is another one. Carl Zimmer for the New York yeah. Times. I have a great colleague who's actually a genomic epidemiologist. Her name is Jennifer Gardy, mm -hmm. at the University of British Columbia, and she's very prominent in the Canadian public television industry, and as well as being a nine to five or 
nine to midnight working, <laughs> bona fide working scientist, and yet she's got this this skill set that that you know I will never be able to have. Yeah. Just, so one of the things that one that we're trying to do in in our institute is is actually develop a training program to help people, to help us, to help. But in particular, I think there's students and postdocs and and maybe uh, young faculty members who might have the the communication gene a little bit overexpressed who have this ability to to do this and to be heard and uh, and to to tell stories as we said um, yeah. in a way that would that doesn't dumb things down yeah. but de-jargonizes the science so that the impact and the implications become clearer it's very very challenging for most of us to yeah. to do that because we're so excited about the details yeah we tend to get very details but I think that's very important to just show from, from an institutional standpoint that you value that these sort of skills, that it's... I think it's essential for science in general. Yeah. Gone are the days where you could just expect that funders will just always be there to yeah. provide you with, with research dollars. In fact, the opposite is happening. So we need to be in front of this. Yeah. You said this about somebody who can really communicate a story. Like, I mean, I work in antimicrobial resistance with the numbers and the details and... That gets me really excited, but I also, I mean, even here, uh, we had a speaker yesterday who told us a patient story of a woman who was doing just fine, was, had been admitted to hospital. She did have blood sepsis, I believe. She very quickly turned and passed away, and they couldn't do anything about it, and you could kind of just tell the desperation behind this. And I mean, that really gets to you, even, sure. even working with this, even being aware of the problem, being aware that these cases exist, hearing the personal story really has an impact. And I'm sure it's the same even if you're not working in the field. I mean, you can't avoid to hear. Of course, yeah. So we don't necessarily, we all know of people who, who have either been, you know, severely injured or who have died unexpectedly. And so you can relate to that right mm -hmm. away. It's very human, right? It's like, oh my yeah. gosh, that's a terrible thing that happened. What happened? And you find out it's something like this. Mm -hmm. And it's something that, or we used to be able to prevent. Well, that's, that's the thing. So I was actually a victim of AMR myself. Oh. So I, I tell that story almost every time I give a, a talk in public. So I got food poisoning that eventually went back to remit. Mm -hmm. And then the antibiotics that I received to treat what was subsequently found out was a salmonella infection. So the first antibiotic I got was ciprofloxacin. And it mm -hmm. turned out that the organism that was causing the disease was ciprofloxacin resistance. And then subsequently we found another antibiotic that worked. But I know personally... Yeah. What it's like to get an antibiotic, being very, very sick, anticipating that you're going to get well, because that's been that's, that's what's been the to story of you're antibiotics. Medicine, you're supposed to get better. And in the fact, getting worse and worse. Yeah. And but then having the relief that something actually was there to solve the problem. Mm -hmm. And I always tell people when I give that story, what if there was nothing? Yeah. And there are patients in our hospital right now. Where there is nothing that we can give anymore. Mm -hmm. That's it. And I think that gives them pause. Yeah. Right? Because if, if it can happen to me, then it can happen to you. It yeah. can happen to your mom or your friends or your niece or whatever. Has that impacted in any way? Or, I mean, you were already, of course, working with antimicrobial resistance. Yes. But do you think that's kind of given you an extra push to keep working in it? or? Oh, it's maybe hate salmonella with passion. <laughs> No more working with salmonella. <laughs> oh, no. So what happened is actually because I, you know, normally 
you wouldn't be able to do this, but I actually got hold of the organism. Oh, uh-huh, you got a sample. Yeah, so I knew people in the public health lab, and so they were, they gave me the sample of it, and I sequenced the genome. Mm-hmm. And so I found the DNA gyres mutation that confers classic resistance to fluoroquinolones like ciprofloxacin. So we have it in, we have the strain in the lab, and we use it when we're looking for new antibiotics. We test it called Jerry Sandoval. And uh, we test it. So I, that must have been very personal to go out and see the resistance oh, gene, like the, the mutation yourself. Yeah, no, it was. It really brings a. It really did. Extremely personal aspect it, to it. It did. And uh, I must confess, yeah, so it was. It was a really interesting confrontation when we, you know, struck it out in the lab for the first time. We yeah. The yellow petri dish. Like, See it. <laughs> well, on that note, I actually want to wrap up with that story. I want to thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us. I know you're not. You're here in the country for less than 24 hours, I believe. Something like that. Yeah, <laughs> close to it. We're yeah. very appreciative that you took the time. Oh, it's entirely my us. pleasure. And thanks for asking, and congratulations on on doing this. As we talked about, you know how important it is to do, you know, for communication in this field. Um, you guys are doing your part, and I really think it's fantastic. Well done. Well, thank you very much. My pleasure. So welcome back. Ava, what did you think about this interview? Well, I, I think I, I was uh, clear already when I introduced the interview because um, this interview was a very heartwarming interview and a very enjoyable interview. I have to say I first listened to it when I was at home doing other stuff, you know, the first contact with the interview and I kept smiling all the time and just like, <laughs> I, I just enjoy so much how he is playing his, uh, how he came to work into the field yeah. and how he came into VR scientist and a researcher and of course I have heard from Jerry's uh, interventions before because a lot of people here at work are colleagues with him and work with him Mm -hmm. and I have heard like how good of a lecturer he is and everything but just listening to his story and listening to what he had to say to you it was really really great. Yeah and I mean he's an amazing researcher and a lot of the work he's done is very impressive to me and then meeting him afterwards and being an incredible person an incredible communicator and just a pleasure to interview it was for me also it was a really great experience and I really loved how I don't know if humble is the right word but he's very down to earth he's very honest and he says oh I like he said he felt like an imposter Mm -hmm. in microbiology yeah that topic on the interview it was great you know because we all deal with this uh, feelings imposter syndrome especially when you start working in science that you I think I have read a lot about this also because you are doing now your PhD I I have defended a couple of years back but this is very close to me at how during when you change from being a student you are a very good student studying and doing exams is easy for you and then you transition into this world where your colleagues are these brilliant people they're the experts and suddenly you have to kind of not compete but you have to be able to hold your own against experts and it feels terrible sometimes. It feels like, why, why am I here? Am I yeah. really that good to actually so be part of these people? Do I have any idea people? what I'm saying? Yeah, I, I, it, that part also, I, I have to say, it yeah. felt really cool to me and I guess to us. Yeah. And just the decision or like the his thought process when he explains why he started as a biochemist and going into antifungals at first and then going into AMR or going further through AMR into antibiotic resistance. I mean, it's really interesting to see what he was thinking and why he made some of these decisions. And they're very, I mean, he wanted to do good. He was looking at not, okay, well, this is something that'll make me famous. It doesn't seem like he was like, no, this is something that I find really interesting and would do good. And this is how I can contribute. 
And I feel like it was a really nice way to see how this like this pattern evolved into his really successful career. Yeah, I, I felt from that interview that he is like a really good team player, right? Yeah. In a sense, it felt like the way that he was explaining how he came into this and, and his role or maybe his uh, motivations to, to be a scientist and to work mm-hmm. in this area, it is of wanted to be part of a bigger team, even though he says that he doesn't take orders very well, which I found that <laughs> he was really fun that he says yeah. like this job is perfect. Have a problem with authority. <laughs> But uh, still, I think that that the way that he was explaining himself, it just feels like he's a good team player and yeah. team member. So. And he seemed to have a lot of appreciation for different skills. And he was talking about like starting a lab requires totally different skills than what you learned from being a good researcher. Mm. But I mean, he has this great appreciation of different skills and different purposes. And he brings up science communication. I think he sells himself totally short as a science communicator, which is clear <laughs> from this interview. He's a great communicator. The lectures that he held in this course in Gothenburg, I absolutely absolutely despise chemistry but he as a <laughs> chemist made it very interesting to listen to very clear and not only fun like I was listening and was active the whole time but I also understood a lot mm-hmm. which is this talent that just some people have it that you can but you keep want to listen interested. to them yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah you want to listen and not only because you say you tell jokes in between or something like that but because you can actually explain what's going on in a good enough uh, exactly. level you know not too much not too little yeah. and yeah and I think he is an excellent communicator so I hope he understands how great he is at that and doesn't sell himself short in the future. Yeah, and I hope that you guys also think the same because I, I do think that the interview was very clear and he was yeah. able to communicate how he feels about the field. And the story at the end where he tells us about his personal experience with antibiotic resistance, mm-hmm. I mean, that really got to me because I can't imagine looking at an bacterial isolate that almost could have killed me. Mm. It's like looking at your, at your, your enemy, b- enemy in the eye. eye. <laughs> <laughs> if bacteria will have eyes, you yes. know what <laughs> Um, and I feel like that must just be such a like because sometimes when we work in this field you don't you're not really attached to the possible outcome yeah I mean I work with some clinical isolates that have had terrible outcomes for some patients and sometimes it doesn't really connect the dots and it kind of jars me a little bit when I get reminded that this isolate caused someone to die and having that extra personal experience where it's like this one and he said he could see the mutation in the gene that caused the resistance to the antibiotic he was originally given yeah I think we should say maybe that an isolate here is a specific bacteria that has yes. caused an infection yeah. and then they are able to isolate it from a specific infection and then you can work with it. It's just, yeah. just so that's where the word isolate in. comes from is yeah. because you have isolated. Yes, isolated from a specific yeah, bacteria. yeah. So yeah. Uh, and this related with what he says that to communicate the problem of AMR sometimes we need to humanize it. Yeah. And if and the if, storytelling. Yeah the, and the yeah. storytelling and if people would be able to feel more close to the problem their relationship to it and how they would maybe think about it would change just as this maybe abstract thing that nobody... Yeah. That's why I think he also was very quick to correct when he said first global warming and then mm-hmm. he said climate change suddenly because global warming for people that are getting, for example, affected where they maybe not be warmer, but there yeah. might be more harsher changes in the climate or in the yeah. weather. It's a misleading It's the same. It's term. a misleading. So I think he has this on the mind all the mm-hmm. time, right? Like how do you make people maybe feel a little bit more closer to the problem yeah. they should be thinking about? Yeah. And he did mention that he has a lot of science left in him. So <laughs> hopefully we get to see more exciting things from him. Yeah. I'm sure that his lab is going to continue producing cool stuff. Yeah. 
and and I seen him actually at a conference once on antibiotic resistance and I think he's really active around in the world not only teaching but also somehow bringing awareness into the problem yeah. even though he is a researcher and he's mm-hmm. doing science I think he's doing a lot for the good of spreading the word and getting people to know about it as well yeah and also just working together with other people in the AMR community yeah yeah I like that he said that the AMR field is a field where he feels that there is more teamwork than yeah. maybe other fields of science so I'm very happy that I chose this field also to work on yeah. and it's true it's true it feels like that it feels like we are all working for a common goal in a sense and we all care about similar stuff and that brings us together so it's a very nice nice touch yeah all right with that I think we might move on to the news Yes, yeah. let's talk about some exciting things that are going on right now. Some scary, some bad news and good news, yeah. yeah. Upsides and downsides. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, see you there. Today we are going to talk about two quite relevant topics that have been around in the news out there. So maybe some of you have already heard about this. So we're going to just go into a little bit details on it and uh, why is this so relevant and why is everybody talking about these two yeah. specific things. One in particular was all over the news. I mean, general news and more scientific AMR news was all over. Yeah, uh, also social media, a lot yeah, of social media. Yeah, a lot of social media. Ava, do you mind introducing that topic? Yeah, so I will present to you the real scientific article behind this news and it's the fact that for first time using modified phages, so viruses that target bacteria, they have been able to treat a chronically ill patient that was basically about to die from a chronic infection. Mm-hmm. And this is the first time that a genetically modified phage, in this case a cocktail of three different phages, has been used to treat a cystic fibrosis patient that had a mycobacterium abscessus infection. And you might have heard our previous special episode. We actually talked about mycobacterium abscesses in particular and about cystic fibrosis patients in mm-hmm. another of the interviews that we talked. So this kind of ties together the two of the topics we brought recently. So just to be clear, it is not uh, mycobacterium tuberculosis, TB. No, right? it is mycobacterium abscesses, which is a non-tuberculosis mycobacterium infection. One of the differences between this is the mycobacterium tuberculosis actually grows inside cells, whereas mycobacterium abscesses is not within uh, cells. So mm. in this case, it might be the way of treating it, it might be a little bit different. Yeah, and she had a systemic, I mean, body-wide infection. They mentioned her liver was infected and other, yes. it was, it's not, it wasn't specific to her lungs. No, yeah, when you read case. the pathology of this patient, it's quite sad because, yeah. I mean, these cystic fibrosis patients are sick their whole life and what happens is that she already had an infection with this mycobacterium uh, bacteria before mm-hmm. the double lung transplant, the bilateral lung transplant that she went through but then after the lung transplant what happened is that her uh, wound for the transplant actually got infected and from yeah. there the infection spread through the body and it was actually a resistant infection as well so yeah. this was really Difficult. bad situation yeah. and a really yeah. and they were she treating was, her and it didn't yeah. work she was put on palliative care i mean end of life care yeah because and this was really a yeah. last line yeah the absolute last line mm. so yeah. what happened is that at that point when she was not really responding to the treatment 
treatment and it was just palli- palliative care. Then her doctor, her the person that was treating her during all these years, decided why not to try to see if we can use phage therapy to treat this one. Because at this moment, phage therapy, which is actually using viruses that can target bacteria, has been used only as compassionate care. That yeah. means that when a patient is about to die and there's nothing you can do, you can actually use drugs and use ways of treating the trying to treat the patient that are not officially approved but that you can at least try so this was kind of like a good example and a good uh, instance to use it yeah because phage therapy is not approved in europe or the u.s it is not approved as a treatment because there is a lot of difficulties of trying to get to a level where you can do clinical trials to get Mm -hmm. real data on if if this works if it doesn't work and through the history of using phage therapy it's been a little bit of hit and miss sometimes it has worked sometimes it has not worked and because of the complexity of understanding how these uh, bacterial viruses work and their characteristics, then this kind of like makes it very, very complicated. Yeah. And these are not living, but these viruses adapt, right? That's part of the problem is that they can Yeah, well, some of the problems is that because they are so variable and there are so many of them, mm-hmm. actually, I was reading a little bit about, I wanted to bring to you the numbers of how many these bacteriophages there is out there. <laughs> so there are 10 to the power of 31 phages particles on Earth. And that number might not tell you anything, but 10 to the power of 31 means 1 trillion per grain of sand on Earth. And given, yeah, these these, (laughs) these, uh, particles are really small. So, of course, many of them don't take much space, you know, but when we are thinking about numbers, there are a lot of them out there. And they're also super interesting when we're talking about using them for target therapy because they have been co-evolving with their host, would be the bacteria. So you can get viruses that are incredibly, incredibly specific specific for one specific strain of bacteria, not even a species. So with this, the idea is that you can use phages to really treat infections in a targeted manner without affecting the rest of the microbiome of the patient, for example. Mm -hmm. Uh, We talked also here before about that. Um, And I think for this study, they had to screen tons. Thousands of. So Uh, what they did was actually, yeah. So what they did was to reach out to a project that has been hunting phages around the world actually for years, Mm -hmm. and they had a really big collection. Sea phage program. Yes, they screen a lot of them to see if they could actually infect this mycobacterium abscessus strain that was infecting her in particular. Yeah. And then they found three phages. One, that it was really good at killing it. And then two, that were okay, so they could actually be used, but they had a problem. One is that it wasn't able to properly kill that specific strain. And another one, that it actually was able to infect that bacteria, but not completely kill it. Mm-hmm. So the new thing that is coming up here in this in this use of phages is that they were able to modify genetically these two phages that weren't that good to actually make them even better and be able to kill this specific bacteria. Then they mix those three, they make a phage cocktail, mm-hmm. and they use it on her. And it was incredibly quickly how much it worked. Yeah, it was a month or two, and she was basically cleared, if I understood right, right. from this very severe infection. And right. she was actually discharged from yeah. the from the hospital. And uh, at this moment, she has not completely cleared up. They still see some okay. evidences. Also, she's still under treatment, yeah. but she basically has a normal life. I mean, she's, of course, still sick, yeah. but she, not to the level she was. She's still a cystic fibrosis patient, and she still recently had a double lung transplant. I mean, right. she, she's, of course, still affected by her condition. But how I it actually... To add yeah. to that, that the mm-hmm. phage, which lysed the clinical isolates of the patient, 
the source of that phage is from a vegetable patch. Yeah, what, which is they, they scraped it off an eggplant. An eggplant. Yeah, <laughs> that, I mean there are phages everywhere, right? Yeah. So we and get, that is the to... one that that lysed uh, the strain that very was the really very good well. One, yeah. Exactly, and that just shows. I mean, we really do, and this is a theme that we've talked about. The one health approach yeah. to AMR is something that is constant, and I think this is a very good example of that as yeah. well. I mean, everything really is interconnected from an eggplant. Yeah. <laughs> To be able to treat uh, an to, infection in right. the clinic. Human as well. infection, yeah. yeah. So, of course, um, this kind of has brought up again the discussion can we use uh, phages as treatment? Mm-hmm. Should we start looking into it again because there are so many resistant strains? And so, this is complicated. And yeah. they actually stress really much that this is our proof of concept. This is a. Absolutely. I w- yeah. I'm not going to say a miracle because it's not a miracle. It obviously a happened. A lot of hard work and effort. And, and but they point out and, that yeah. maybe she could have actually gotten better without the treatment with the phages and that the phages are very specific to this patient. So it's not yeah. something that could be using to another person. But this kind of proves, like, if it's done correctly, like, imagine that you get to a point where we have such a quick and sensitive diagnostics that very quickly you can get to know what the bacteria is infecting a patient. And you know so much about viruses and you have yeah. a array of viruses to look into it super quickly that you can prepare personalized medicine in this case to it. So perhaps in a, in a close future, this yeah. is actually going to be an option. I mean, they did talk about a lot of struggles here that because this bacteria does not grow fast, the screening process took time and that time might not always exist. That's true. And they, But then again, I mean, something worked. They, mm-hmm. And they said, yeah. like, we found one. We, mm. we found three, actually, after alteration that could be used. I mean, that, that in itself is pretty amazing. And the idea of using more than one phage in a treatment is also to avoid the problem of resistance, right? If you're yeah. using just one phage and the bacteria become too resistant to that phage, then you're yeah. basically out of options. But if you have a mix of two, three, four different ones, then you can avoid this type of problem. Yeah. So that's why using more than one. Mm-hmm. And then there's issues with, of course, I mean, phages don't fit well in our framework of approved medications, and that's something that needs to be thought about. And dosing of phages, I know, is something that's often talked about, like how do you dose a phage treatment? Yeah, how, how much? do you know how many phages? How do you know right. how to get them where they need to go? All of that's complicated. It's a little bit of a black box, right? Like yeah. put it in and then see. So I think a lot of work definitely needs to be done in the clinical trials in order yeah. to really see the effects and all of this that we just discussed. Yeah, but it was a really great story. I think it's such yeah. a great story. It's such a great story. And the story. pictures of this girl are just, it's so sweet to see. <laughs> I mean, it really shows. So this the Seaphage Alliance that I mentioned earlier is the program which utilizes about, I think now it's at 30,000 undergraduate graduate students that have gone through the program to screen yeah. all of these phage uh, isolates that uh, Graham Hatfield and co-workers have now have a collection of. I mean, it, it shows not just educational but really real life research and now to translational possibilities yeah. and, and I think like that really, is an, this really great deposit of of really diverse good phages yeah, that exactly. obviously have function right well, there are phages important. everywhere so yeah keep collecting More phages yes <laughs> shout out to them <laughs> <laughs> all right maybe we should move on to the next topic so this is also a topic that's been in the news a bit lately, but maybe not quite as much as we would want. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it kind of ties together with something that we talked about with Dr. Wright in the interview. So Dr. Wright mentioned that he worked with antifungals. And one yes. of the big emerging fungal infections right now is Canada aureus. I might mm-hmm. be mispronouncing this because it sounds kind of like aureus, like staph aureus. Right. So I'm going to say aureus, and I hope that's clear. 
as opposed to the maybe the species that a lot of you might have heard, which is Candida albicans, which yeah. is uh, comments all of our skin and yeah. is uh, it, it can it, cause thrush and yeast infection. So that's the one most people know. But this is a related. also part of Candida, but it's Candida auris. Yeah, related species. Yeah, cousin. A cousin. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> so I mean, this is a fungal infection that's spreading across the world, and there's a lot of issues associated with it. That it's a healthcare associated infection that has very high mortality in patients that get infected, and it's very resistant. So almost universally resistant to one of the main antifungals, fuconazole, but also often resistant to other antifungals. And we don't actually have that many antifungals. No, Only we four. Yeah, four, four main classes of antifungals. Mm-hmm. So we often, even here, I mean, we're called the AMR studios, but we often talk about antibiotics and mm. things that target bacteria. But antifungals kind of get yeah, left on the sideline a little. Is a, right. It's yeah. an antimicrobial, would be an antifungal. Yeah, yeah mm. an antifungal is, is included there. So this is a very resistant and difficult to treat infection. And aside from that, it lives on everything. Mm. So, so it's not only like very invasive to patients and yeah. kind of a little bit more virulent than what we're used to mm-hmm. see in In mainly immunocompromised patients. Yeah, so it, it, it's only really targeting patients that are already sick in one way or another. Which or makes another. it even worse because yeah. their own bodies are not able to fight exactly. this and then you can use the most used uh, drug for it. So yeah. it kind of adds it's, it's to it. It's a terrible spiral there. I mean, it seems to be very And it's been found serious. in different places around the world actually yeah. coming up at the same time. So there's been a debate around that, like why has this happened independently in so many mm-hmm. places? And the culprit or the idea is that we are using actually assoles, which will be the same drug family as the fluconazole, that is mm-hmm. the drug used to treat these kind of infections of candida. These assoles have been actually used in agriculture yeah. and in other treatments. So this increased use of this type of drug perhaps has incremented the chances yeah. of getting a candida species that is resistant to these type of drugs. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, while it's hard to prove that something comes from, for example, use of antifungals in agriculture, the, the widespread use, I didn't know it was so widely used in agriculture, like sprayed on vegetables to prevent them from molding. I didn't really know how broad that was. I mean, it would break my heart to see somebody spraying antibiotics on plants, but I didn't know they were spraying antifungals either. But so this disease is really spread around the world too. It, it's in North America, Africa, Europe, Asia, I'm sure more, but those are the ones that I see. On yeah, the we're going to leave a couple of links and one of those links for the CDC, the Center for Disease Control yeah. in the US, and they're doing a more actual on-time monitorization yeah. of where is this actually coming up. So you and can, if you're curious, you can actually go in there and check it out. Yeah. And I think one of the other articles that will um, attach also mentioned that it's a bit amazing that this is not a real-time thing that's been spoke talked about in media, that you don't know when a hospital is having an outbreak. They maybe write an article afterwards and you find out there was an outbreak. Right. Mm-hmm. But it's not something that you know about while it's happening, even though it's a very serious thing. And Which there... it also happens with antibiotic-resistant yeah. bacteria outbreaks. And yeah. yeah, then it's actually very thoroughly studied scientifically and so on. Yeah. But as it's happening, this should be news, right? Yeah. This should, people should know about it. And this. especially, I mean, in this case, they had to close down entire wings and emergency rooms and everything because... They basically needed to. I mean, there was one example where they had to tear out part of the ceiling. Yeah, because, because what you were mentioning is not only yeah. very virulent, but it's also it grows on catheters. It, it grows, grows on everywhere. Everything basically, it can grow anywhere. So if a patient's been in the room that's been sick and been infected, at one point they literally said they had to tear out part of the ceiling afterwards to try to contain it. And that's just if it spreads more. I mean, that's just unsustainable. <laughs> yeah, especially because in these facilities you have these patients that need extra care that they don't yeah. get infected with anything. It's also mentioned this species of cancer that can also grow or live in healthy people and yeah. it's not going to cause a problem but the problem is when it actually gets to the person that really needs to be protected from infections then we see this high mortality and we have a growing number of people in 
society that are immunocompromised in one way or another. As we're getting older, the yeah. societies are getting older. And mm. we have different kinds of medical treatments. I mean, transplants and cancer treatments and all of that. It's so, risky. So yeah, we'll, we'll so see how this develops. Can I be devil's advocate and say, I don't think maybe that might be a good idea because if we do have a real-time broadcast of the situation happening yeah. in the hospital, I think that might create panic. Yeah. It could, yeah. right? Not just for the people working in the hospital because as humans, we, we're sometimes prone to this Um, and perhaps definitely some sort of real time but to what extent I think that might be that should be looked at further yeah yeah there is an ethical side of it too to kind of keep and not to bring like panic and that was actually something else that was brought up in one of these articles a patient whose relative was a carrier of Canada Ores but not Hmm. infected so not sick with that but in the hospital and was a carrier people didn't want to touch him yeah I mean this is a stigma of the yeah there was a stigma that he was a carrier of this the health workers of course I mean naturally were Mm. a bit afraid but then that affected their treatment of this other patient and that is really sad when this patient feels very stigmatized and very set aside isolated yeah Yeah. I think we do need to do a bit more work there on that side yeah and this is something we've discussed also at the Mm -hmm. studio yeah the stigma of disease and Mm. everything yeah definitely the social aspect (laughs) social aspect of it yeah but I mean I guess like health professionals are also a little bit scared in this case something so sudden something that you don't know much Mm -hmm. about that is difficult to take care of. I mean, it seems very difficult to manage this in a mm. hospital setting, in an infection prevention setting. It seems really difficult. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. But hopefully... We'll see how this develops. We'll see how that goes. Uh, yes. yeah. So one happy story and one yeah. less happy we, story. <laughs> we just thought that we wanted you to know because this has been around a little bit. Yeah. The, and we hear talk a lot about antibiotics. Yeah. But for once, we thought like this is an antifungal related yeah. story. Let's, let's bring it up because we are not the ABR studio. We are the AMR studio, right? Yeah. So right. as always, we're going to leave all the links and uh, relevant <laughs> reads that you can go and check if you want to know a little bit more about this. Yeah. And with that, we say bye to you for now and I hope that you are going to be back with us here through the summer because we are not having a summer hiatus the idea is that we are still going to release one episode now in June and then July and then in August so come back and listen to us more when you're on vacation yeah exactly (laughs) enjoy bye bye For more information about the Uppsala Antibiotic Center, please visit our website. You can find a link in the episode notes. You can also follow us in Twitter. Our handle is UAC underscore UU. This episode was brought to you by the AMR Studios, composed by Eva Garmendia, Jenny Jackman, and Po Chen Tang. And a big thank you to Henrik Nis for letting us use his song, Sound the Alarm. You can find a link to his Spotify in the episode notes.